Good morning, College Park. Our uh, scripture this morning is found in Romans chapter 9, verses 30 to Romans chapter 10, verse 13. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as it were, based on works. They had stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, Or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead? But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart... One believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call upon him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, will be saved. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, we come today and our aim, my aim is to make much of you and that those who believe in you would be strengthened in their trust and their hope in you, and those today who do not know you, that today would be the day of conversion. That the word proclaimed, the word of faith, is so near that today that would cross the line from an unbeliever to a believer. We thank you for the power of this gospel, this good news that we proclaim. We thank you that it's being proclaimed not only here, but also at Castleview Baptist Church, Traders Point Christian Church, we pray for Eric and Aaron today as they proclaim the mysteries of the gospel, that you'd give them clarity, and that the light of the beautiful mystery of Christ would be declared in every church, in every community in this city. And we pray that many people today 
would be gloriously converted. And we pray in this moment and in this service, people would be converted. So come Holy Spirit, you are the converter and we need your power or we'll just have words. We'll just be in a room and we need you to speak to us today about Christ through his word. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. If you had 30 seconds and you, knew, and you knew that was all you had to share the gospel with someone, if you're at a bedside of a dying relative and they're in a coma and suddenly they wake up from that coma and you know that time is short, what verse would you quote to them to both capture the gospel and invite them to become a follower of Jesus? Even if you're not a believer, you're not a Christian, and you're here, you probably know particular Bible verses, you may have heard them, and, or maybe just a word or a phrase that you might know that would capture or summarize what is the essence of what the Bible is all about. The question is, what words, what verse, what ideas would you give to very quickly invite somebody to become a Christian. Of all the verses in the Bible, there are two in our text today that I think, at least I would commend them to you as these might be or should be the verses that you could use. Let's read this text aloud together. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. These verses, friends, capture the essence and the beauty of what makes grace absolutely amazing. And what they do, these verses, they, they, they capture the essential difference between Christianity and all other religions in the world. They, they lay the foundation, the distinction between how a person is saved, how one is made righteous, and the difference in terms of that worldview from all other religions. Today my aim is to speak to two audiences. First, to those of you who are religious and know the truths that I'm talking about. I'm not gonna share anything new with you, but I hope that you will see the beauty of God's grace in a new way and be motivated to trust in Jesus in new ways today. I wanna strengthen your faith. I want to help you. And then others of you who are here and you're not Christian, you're not a Christian, and I'm so thrilled that you are a part of this gathering. Maybe you're trying to figure out the claims of Christ. You've got a lot of great questions. And my prayer, my agenda for you today is that you would see the beauty of this text and you would come to a point where you're done with you. And you would say, I believe in Jesus. That you walked into this room not believing in Jesus and you leave out saying, I believe that Jesus is Lord. And I believe God raised him from the dead. And the Bible says, if that happens, then you're saved. And that's the beauty of amazing grace. It's been a while since we've been in Romans. We're in a section in this study called the mystery of righteousness. And this mystery of righteousness began in chapter nine and takes us all the way through chapter 11. It 
identifies the way in which God has worked in history in order to bring people to himself. And in chapter nine, we saw some challenging things about the way in which God works. I wanna give you just a quick review. Take your finger and let me just have you put your finger on a few verses just to set the context. First, go to verse six, put your finger on it. There were three questions that Romans nine asked The first question is, has the word of God failed since the promises to Israel have not come to pass? And verse six answers it. It's not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. So the argument was that God's plan for Israel hasn't failed. There's a remnant, a chosen remnant. And the minute we use the word chosen, there's this reaction of, wait a minute, chosen? How does that work, and how is that fair? And now go to verse 14. Put your finger on verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Because he operates this way, is God somehow unfair? And the answer was, no, 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 no. God is free. He's free to be who he needs to be for his own glory and for the magnification of his name. His freeness is the essence of what it means for God to be God. So there's no injustice. It's amazing that God saves anyone. And then third, look at verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? And so here we see the the category of fairness that's brought to bear. In other words, how is that fair? How is it fair that God chooses to save some and then by default then chooses not to save others? And the answer in the Bible was, you need a new definition of fair. Like if you're looking at that from your lens, I get it but you gotta look at it from the optics of God's lens and a a redefinition of fair. So the whole point of Romans nine was to demonstrate that God's promises, both to Israel and in Romans eight to the whole created order who received Christ as savior, those promises are rooted in God's sovereignty and who he is and that God is working out his plan to demonstrate his power and to show his glory, and he shows it through both mercy and through judgment. And the way in which God dealt with Israel is a microcosm of sovereign purposes. It's a small little picture of much bigger issues, namely that God's relationship with his chosen people becomes a vivid picture of who he is as God. We have learned a lot about God from Romans 9, but we are not done. Because Romans 10 shows us that there's another side of the coin. We heard this kind of language in Romans 9. It depends on, it depends not rather on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. That's Romans 9. So it doesn't depend upon human will or human exertion. And then Romans 10 says, with the heart one believes and is justified, and with a mouth one confesses and is saved. So in one respect, it says human beings do absolutely nothing, but in Romans chapter 10 it tells us that no, you need to believe and confess, and so we're gonna talk about the other side of this coin today. So if you know anybody who left because of what I said in Romans 9, tell them they need to listen to today's sermon, okay? Because it balances out Romans 9. What's the point of our text today? Verse 30 through chapter 10 and verse 13, here it is. It's ironic that the people most likely to achieve righteousness, namely Israel, missed it. And the most unlikely people, namely the Gentiles, received it. That 
It's not how it was supposed to work. And if you're an Israelite and you're pursuing righteousness and you have the law and you know you're God's chosen people and suddenly you see as a nation you've missed righteousness and these Gentiles who are outcasts, who are lawless, that suddenly now they've been welcomed into the kingdom and all they need to do is believe. It's a stunning display of the beauty of God's mercy. So how did that happen? And what does it tell us about God's grace? What is this? Ironic twist between Israel and the Gentiles. What does it tell us about grace? Well, it tells us a number of things about grace, and we're going to look at two today. And those are, number one, the roadblocks to righteousness, and secondly, what does it mean to receive righteousness? So in the first section, I'm going to speak to those of us who are religious. You grew up in Christian homes. You grew up in church. Your standard operating procedures. You're here on a Sunday, just like every other Sunday throughout most of the course of the year. The first section speaks to us. The second section speaks to those of you who are yet, have yet to receive Christ. And what does receiving Christ actually mean? So first, the roadblocks to righteousness. In chapter nine, verse 30, through chapter 10 and verse four, Paul identifies that there's a problem, and the problem is Israel's failure when it came to achieving God's righteousness despite the fact that Israel had all kinds of blessings. Think of all of them that she had. She had the law. She had been rescued from slavery. Her history is filled with the fact that God rescued you out of a desperate position. 400 years you were slaves. God rescued them out. And despite all of these blessings of being God's people and having the law, this great story, they missed it. They, they, they missed God's righteousness. They, they killed their own Messiah. They had so many things at their disposal, and yet, for the most part, the nation had not embraced true righteousness. Look at verse 30 and 31. It sets up a stunning contrast. It says, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. The Gentiles were known for their unrighteousness. Israel was known for her righteousness. Gentiles were considered outsiders. They were considered outcasts, immoral, lawless, depraved, Gentiles didn't have a law of God written for them to guide their conduct. And on the contrary, Israel had the law, and her mission in life, according to Isaiah 60, was to be a light to the world. That the nations were supposed to see the glorious display of righteousness, of the mediation of God's glory as resident in their nation. And other nations were to see that and then be, be welcomed into the people of God or be attracted to Israel to learn about the one true God. But that did not happen. How, what happened? Well, verses 30 and 31 explain that Gentiles, they did not pursue righteousness, they attained it. Israel pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, but they did not achieve it. Verse 30b tells us why. He says that is a righteousness that is by faith. That's the Dividing line. The contrast is between not just Israel and Gentiles, but the contrast is between a works-based righteousness and a faith-based righteousness. 
And so what happens here is in the same way that chapter nine was a microcosm of God's plan with Israel as it is related to the entire world, so it is that chapter 10 is a microcosm of works-oriented righteousness in contrast to faith-oriented righteousness. Or to say it clearly, Israel then becomes a warning, a warning to anyone who is moderately religious. Verse 32 states very clearly, Paul answers the question, why? Why did this happen? Here's why. Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based upon works. So they based their righteousness on their works and not based upon faith. And as a result, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. So the thing, the law, that was supposed to point them to God to be a means, a conduit by which they were able to worship God becomes the means by which they try and establish their own righteousness. So the gift of God in the form of the law that was designed to bend them on their knees and make them look to God as their savior and their refuge and their strength became instead a means of making much of themselves. What was supposed to be a conduit became a mirror. And they looked at themselves and how righteous they were and they liked what they saw and they began to justify themselves and the thing that was meant to point to God, they ended up using in order to point to themselves. So Paul then drives this home using an Old Testament reference. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. He's quoting loosely here from Isaiah 8 and Isaiah 28. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. The idea and the simple message is this, that those who trust in Yahweh, those who trust in God, find him to be a shelter and a security in the midst of judgment. But those who place their trust elsewhere will face devastating judgment. That's the idea of what's happening in this text. That's why Paul quotes it. And what he's essentially saying is that belief in God protects a person from judgment. That's what it means not be put to shame. The idea is you're standing before God and those who put their trust in him are not put to shame. And then he says this stumbling stone, this object of belief, Peter tells us in 1 Peter is none other than Christ. And so the idea is that the Jews, rather than putting their trust in Christ, missed their Messiah, put their hope in their own righteousness, and they used the the law to prop up their righteousness to make themselves feel better that they were indeed righteous when in fact they weren't. So the ironic twist here is that the most righteous people on earth were in fact not righteous, although they thought they were, when the most unrighteous people in the world became righteous because they didn't pursue righteousness like the righteous people were pursuing it. Make sense? It did to me. Why is this this in the Bible? The reason this is in the Bible is to highlight the irony of what I just said about righteous people following righteous deeds to try and make themselves righteous and they miss righteousness completely. To look at Israel and go, well, they're the only people who've ever done that would be foolish and to not know ourselves very well. Because every single one of us in this room who have any kind of spiritual heritage, and I mean if it was you've been a Christian a week or if you've been a Christian for 70 years, all of us need to look at the example of Israel and go, that could happen to me. It's a warning here, this text. And I wanna 
pastorally caution you because this text really applies to a Sunday morning crowd like all of us. I'm part of that crowd. I grew up in a Christian home. I went to church nearly every single week of of my life. I attended Sunday schools. I, I went to Christian school all through my education. And I saw this lived out. I saw it lived out very, very practically that sometimes the people closest to the truth are in fact furthest from it. Went to a Christian school where there were a lot of really good kids and there were not some good kids who knew the Heidelberg Catechism and could quote it and then went out and partied like pagans on the weekend. And you might hear that and go, how hypocritical. True, but that's not the point. The point is how easy it is to do it. When in the midst of a Christian environment with Christian teachers and Christian subjects in front of you and Christian material that you're constantly memorizing, you have all these Christian culture, Christian dynamics, Christian realities going around you, and suddenly it's very easy to convince yourself that you're actually a Christian even though you live like a pagan. You're actually a Christian even though there's no real relationship with Christ because you're so close to Christian things. I'm not throwing Christian education, Christian homes, Christian environments under the bus at all. But I am cautioning you and warning you that Christian culture doesn't produce righteousness. Jesus does. I'm cautioning you teenagers or children who have all the benefits of a Christian home. Here's my challenge to you. Go home and count how many Bibles are in your house. Stack them up. I bet there's 10, 12. You know how many people in the world have 10 copies of, Bible, of a Bible in their home? How many much materials have you been given? Parents who bring you to church, sometimes forcing you to come. Some of you were woken up this morning, and you're like, gotta go to church. And there's this cultural environment that is somewhat forced upon you and somewhat brought to bear upon you. You need to know that while that is a wonderful heritage connected to that, it's also very dangerous because you could think that just because you're familiar with concepts or you're in the context of an environment where those things are talked about, that you have the reality of an imputed righteousness of Christ inside of you, and just to be in the room doesn't mean that Christ is inside of you. It's also a warning for us as parents to realize that just because we put our kids in the right environments or get them around the right people or prevent the wrong people from hanging out with them, that somehow they're safe. (laughs) While I was in seminary, I partially put my way through seminary by being an admissions counselor at an undergraduate Christian university, and I'll never forget, I may have even told this story, but I was trying to help a a family as their daughter was considering enrolling in the undergraduate program, and and the mom had a kind of a strange worldview to begin with about parenting and everything else, and it came to a a head when she said in the midst of our meeting, so look, my daughter's gonna come to your school for for four years, we're gonna pay thousands of dollars. When she comes out of your school, she's gonna be godly, right? (laughs) And my answer was, ma'am, we'll do our best, but you had her for 18 years. Not sure if they enrolled their daughter or not, but the, <laughs> the, the point is this, that you, you can't just set up the right context in the right environment. You can keep your kids safe from some things that are potentially dangerous, but also self-deception is also incredibly dangerous. Church, spiritualized cultures do not guarantee true spirituality. Your spiritual heritage can be a roadblock to righteousness. That's the point. So listen to what Paul is saying about Israel. Read the Bible 
through the lens of knowing that Israel is a microcosm of spiritual people who missed it. And don't you think for a moment, if I was there, I wouldn't have done that. There's four other roadblocks that Paul lists. That's a general overview of the concern. Verse one, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they be saved. So Paul wants the people of Israel to be saved. There are four roadblocks. Here's the first one. It is pointless zeal. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to the knowledge. So here it is. First roadblock is people who are religious and they are zealous, but they are pointless in their zealousness or they're zealous for zealousness' sake. Paul knew what this was like. This was part of his own experience. He says this in Philippians 3, 4 through 6. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And I have a pedigree, listen to mine. Circumcised the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And Paul says, and it's all worthless except for knowing Christ. He stacks up all of those things, all that pedigree, and says it's absolutely worthless unless a person knows Christ. So what Paul is saying here is that the Jewish people stood out from the rest of the world by virtue of their passionate commitment to purity, their zealousness for obedience. There's nobody who had a greater passion to try and obey than Israel. And how did that work out for them? Their zeal was not according to knowledge which meant that it was a zealousness that actually worked against them. You know you can be zealous and be wrong, right? I mean, it's shocking, isn't it, when that happens? It's happened to me once in my lifetime. (laughs) Recently, we had a family conflict, and the entire family conflict was all my fault. It was. I had to repent of it, ask my kids forgiveness. It was all my fault. I got overly zealous, I got worked up, got offended, got mad about something. And so I'm zealously leaning in on something. That's a nice way to say it. I'm I'm leaning in on this conversation and this discussion. And unfortunately, my wife and I have not had a chance to check to be sure if my zealousness is on the right track. And so I'm going and I'm assuming that she's on board with my zeal. And as I'm saying my zealous words and leaning in on this very important matter, I keep looking at her and thinking, she is not supporting this with her face. And inside, I'm thinking, she is unkind, she doesn't care about me, once again, she is not taking my position, and I'm going to look worse in front of our kids. So rather than backing up, I amp it up even further to think that by force of my zeal, I can just bring everything, and it just got worse and worse and worse. And eventually I realized, you know, I probably just need to take a time out here a minute. And then my wife said, honey, can we talk upstairs? And then I was, new. oh man, it's awful. <laughs> I'm way out on a limb, I can hear it. So I come upstairs and we sit on our bed and she skillfully and wonderfully unpacks the situation and says, here's what's really going on. And she said, what are you doing? (laughs) And suddenly it dawned on me, I'm wrong. (laughs) And it was so jarring and so shocking because moments earlier, I was absolutely convinced that I was right. I was zealously convinced and was using everything within me to convince everyone, even myself, that I was truly right. And that's what happens with zeal, friends. 
It's not just that we're passionate, it's that we use our passion to tamp down the thoughts. What if I'm not right on this? What if I'm doing a little bit too much here? What if I'm not really on the right track? And we use our zeal to blow over thinking. And here's what the Israelites did. They used their zealousness for their own righteousness to press down what they should have known to be true. Seen it happen the other way as well, where parents become so zealous because of mistakes that they've made in their past, that they're like, our kids aren't making that mistake. And so they lock it down, install GoPro cameras on the faces of their kids, <laughs> have apps on their phone to track them, install drone cameras, and they're like, they, they are not gonna do, and you're like, some of you are there in your heart, you say, yeah, we believe in Jesus, but we trust in ourselves. And you, you, you double down and it's not gonna happen. And in your zeal, you end up missing the very heart of what true obedience is. Your well-placed zeal ends up creating a lack of righteousness and children walk away from that going, my parents were crazy. And they claim to love Jesus. And I don't know how to put those two together. Pointless zeal. Zeal does not make you right. In fact, it can only serve to make you even more self-deceived. That's the point. Secondly, the second roadblock is willful ignorance. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own. So there's a willful ignorance. That word ignorance can mean in English you don't know something, like you don't know something is true. You're ignorant of something being true. But usually it means something that you know or should know is true, and you just fail to either remember or you don't want to remember, or you act in a way that's ignorant of the way that you really should be acting. That's the point. Israel knew better. They knew why God had given them the law. The challenge was is that they saw the law and they began to use it in order to make much of themselves instead of using it as a conduit for God. In their passion for self, they used the law to eclipse its ultimate purpose. So there was willful ignorance. They used spiritual things to make much of themselves, even though they knew that's not really what you should do. Do we do that? Oh, do we do that? Third, they got involved in proud self-justification, being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own. There's the key. They tried to establish their own righteousness. This is the essence of the problem, that the, the Jews used the law in order to justify themselves. They used it to compare themselves to others. Well, at least we're not like the Gentiles, that lawless, pagan, wicked group of people. And they used the law in order to compare themselves to others and to fill up their proud hearts that they were worthy of God's affection. Like the man praying in the parable where he stands in the temple and says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Even though that's a prayer you're saying to God. Can you imagine? God looking, thank, you're thanking me that you're not like other men. I mean, if I was God, I'd be like, there you go. Now you're not like other men. <laughs> I thank you that I'm not like other men. What in the world? And yet, don't we do that? We seek to establish why we're the exception to the rule, why we're better than others, why we're more righteous. I mean, this happens so fast. Some of you, you'll, you'll, you won't do this today because I'll mention it, but you would do this. You're driving home and you see somebody and they're texting and driving. You'd be like, texting and driving. Look at that. They shouldn't be. That's illegal. And you drive by them and you're like, put your phone away, right? 
And then you get to the next light, your phone dings, you pull it out, and you're like texting. And the reason you think that you can do it and they can't, here's why, is because you're good at it and they're not. (laughs) And you think the law applies to bad people who do it, like they can't do it very well. But to people who can do it and still drive well, it doesn't apply to me, and so therefore you can be judgmental of one and justify it in yourself. And if your kid's like, aren't you not supposed to be texting and driving, Dad? Your answer will be, oh, I do it much better than they do it. I mean, (laughs) what's that? I thank you, God, that I don't text like other people. Fourth. The heart of all this is that we are rebelliously resistant. Seek to establish their own and they did not submit to God's righteousness. Here's the end game. It is that they refuse to submit to what God says about them. The gospel says you need help. You you need to trust in Christ. The rebellious heart says, I'm not helpless. The rebellious heart says, I'm better than others, I don't need your help, and I am worthy of your love. You ought to love me, I am a catch. And the problem is that Israel lived this way. They used the spiritual gifts of the law and other things in a way that God never intended. And instead, Paul says, for Christ, verse four, for Christ, notice that, for Christ is the end of the law, meaning that's the end game, the goal, the fulfillment. Christ is the fulfillment of the law. Think of it this way, Christ is the law, Christ's law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So if you're not a religious person and you're here today, if I were to ask you what you're counting on in terms of your salvation, usually people who are irreligious say things like this. Look, I I haven't killed anyone. I'm not as bad as other people. I've done a lot of good things, and that's what a lot of people say. You know what religious people say? Well, I've been a Christian all my life. I, um, I attended church since I was a child. I was baptized as a teenager. I give generously. I'm involved in social justice work. I participated in small groups. I served this weekend and got wet. I mean, all those things. We, and, and the challenge is, is that the the irreligious person and the religious person do the exact same thing. They, they justify themselves on their deeds. The irreligious person feels like he can justify himself by all the bad things he hasn't done, whereas the religious person feels like he or she can justify him or herself based upon the good things that she, he or she has done. And the tragic connection between them is the absence of faith in Christ. Anything else besides faith in Christ becomes a roadblock. Your only answer when you stand before God, if he were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven, is Christ. Christ. Don't you tell God in that moment, I was a member of College Park Church, as important as that is. Don't you tell him, I gave, as important as that is. I was there in April when Mark talked about salvation. Your word, your answer on that day is Christ. Why should I let you into heaven? Christ. What is your hope in eternal life? Christ, Christ, Christ. We are a Christ-focused, Christ-loving, Christ-cherishing people. Why? Because that's all we've got. And nothing else. The hymn writer said, on Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. It's the roadblocks. What about receiving righteousness? So what does true righteousness look like? What does it 
What is it? And in essence, it is something that is received, not something that is earned. So Israel missed what true righteousness is, and the Gentiles received it, and so how does Paul describe it? Well, the first thing we see, there's five words that overlap. The first word is the word faith. Verse five, for Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them, but the righteousness based on faith says, so what Paul's doing is setting up a contrast between how some people have used the Old Testament, and I think that's what he's doing in verse five. It's a quote of Leviticus 18, and it's probably a verse that those who were making the case that you live by keeping the law, that was a favorite verse that they'd like to quote, but they pulled it out of context. So I think Paul uses that exact same verse in his argument to say, you people who believe you can live by the law, here's your go-to verse. So he uses that, and then he counters it with Deuteronomy 30. We'll look at that in a moment. All of that to say that the essential fulcrum in the worldview or the dividing line that Paul is identifying here is what do you do with faith? Righteousness does not come to those who work for their righteousness, but instead to those who trust or put their faith in God's giving them righteousness. So true spirituality then is not found in our works, but it's found in Christ's work. And that's the theme that runs all through the Bible, especially the New Testament. So how do you receive righteousness? You don't work. It comes by faith. Here's the second thing. There's also an aspect of dependence. So verse five was that verse that was used out of context. Verse six, Paul then quotes Deuteronomy 30 with commentary. So whenever you see a parenthetical thought, that's Paul adding his words into his citation of Deuteronomy 30 in order to explain how he's interpreting Deuteronomy 30 in this present context. So he lists Deuteronomy 30 to counter Leviticus 18 in order to make this point. He says, the righteousness based upon faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, here's Paul's parenthetical thought, to bring Christ down, or verse seven, who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. Again, that's his parenthetical thought. But what does it say? The word is near you and in your mouth. Again, parenthetical thought. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. What's he saying? He's saying that in order for you to become righteous, God has to do it for you, and he's destroying the argument that you need to have superhuman strength in order to do something, in order to merit that righteousness. In other words, you can't go up into heaven and bring Christ down. You can't go into the grave and raise him from the dead as if your strength or your dependence or your dependency upon yourself would somehow create that salvation. You don't have to bring Christ down. He already came down. You don't have to bring him down from his ascension. He's already at his ascension point. You don't have to bring him up from the grave. God has already done that. The point is this, that all of your salvation is dependent not on your work, but on God's work. That's the point. The word of faith that Paul proclaims is near to them because it was brought to them. It's not like they had to go and get it. God brought it to them. I mean, just think of that. 
God is bringing his word to you. He brought it to you through his son. He's bringing it to you through the word. He's bringing it through you, to you through my mouth, through your hearing. It is here. It's right in front of you. You don't have to go get it. It's here. You don't have to work for it. It's here. You don't have to strive for it. It's here. You don't have to be superhuman. It's right in front of you. That's the point. That's what Paul is saying. It's right here, right now. It's a beautiful offering. Third word, the word believe. Because, I love that word. Here's why it's right here. What do you have to do? Here it is. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So I'm gonna treat these in reverse order. I know the word confess is first, but it's not first in the salvation order, which Paul clarifies in verse 10, for he says, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. We're talking about what happens in your mouth in a moment. First, belief. The heart believes and then confesses what is believed. So to believe means that you put your trust in what God says about Christ, about you and your sin, and about atonement. So to believe in Jesus means, listen carefully, that you believe what the Bible says about him and you believe what the Bible says about you. You've stopped believing in what you say about you. You see, the problem as to why people are condemned is because they don't believe what the Bible says and instead they believe what they say. And you need to listen carefully to the cultural narrative. There's a deeper cultural narrative that's being promulgated in our world today and that narrative sounds something like this. What you need to do is look deep inside of yourself, figure out who you are, and be that person, and don't let anybody, including the world, or government, or your family, or God, tell you that you can't be who you are. That is the narrative in our culture. The heroes of our day are the people who don't let anything stand in our way. The people who we respect, and cheer, and clap, and esteem are those who figure out who they are, and then they just tell the world who they really are, regardless of the categories in which they're talking about. Over the weekend, you should have probably heard a little bit about Bruce Jenner. Just watch what people are saying and the applauding that's happening. And look at the narrative. Look at the theology that's coming out in that. Figure out who you are. Declare to the world you're a hero because, after all, the end game is figure out who you are and don't let anyone stop you from being that person. And yet here comes the Bible that says, wait a minute. Your narrative inside of you is broken. And the way that you become a follower of Jesus and where true hope is found is not by believing in yourself or believing in the inner you, but instead believing in what God says about you. That truth is found not inside of you, truth is found outside of you in the person and work of Jesus. That real hope comes from not believing in yourself, but believing in Jesus. That repentance involves looking away from yourself and instead putting your trust in the work of another. Friends, this is how Christianity is becoming so countercultural. It's not just that the morals are no longer accepted of the Bible, but it is that the narrative under which everything is based is fundamentally different. That 
true success and true truth is not found within us, it's found outside of us. It's in the person and work of Jesus that if it's up to me, I'll never come to the right conclusions and I won't be able to merit God's affection because I'm fundamentally broken, I'm a sinner at my core, I'm utterly, totally depraved. I need somebody else to rescue me. I need truth outside of myself. I need a redeemer who can give me his righteousness and that's how wholeness actually happens. Fourth, calling. True belief is not silent. You can't say, I'm a Christian, I've just never told anybody. I'd say to you, you're not a Christian then. The words confess and call are all over the passage. You gotta, you gotta say it. You gotta call out to God and say, I'm a sinner, I'm done with me, I need Christ, come. You need to say, I believe in Jesus. You gotta say, Jesus is Lord. That saying doesn't save you. It's the belief. The saving is the effect. They're so closely linked that Paul combines them here. Notice what he says. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. With the mouth, one confesses and is saved, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So what is calling? What is confessing? It is a verbal expression of belief in the heart. To confess means you say the same thing about your sin and Christ that God would say. That you say, I'm a sinner, I need a savior, Jesus is Lord, I believe in him. And the Bible says, you're saved. To call on him means that you invite the help that is so desperately needed. And the beautiful thing is that the gospel invites us to receive it. It means that we are invited to believe what God has done for us in Christ, to call upon him for our righteousness, to agree with God who Jesus is and what he has done. And the scandal of the gospel is that righteousness comes to people as they believe, not as they work. That righteousness comes to them not because of their effort or their self-attained righteousness, but instead Righteousness comes to those who look away from themselves and say, I need a savior and I look to Christ. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, that's what it means to become one, that you are done looking inside of yourself for answers and instead say, everything I've found in there is broken and I need someone else to take control, that I have made a mess of my life, the Bible calls that sin, and I need someone to cleanse me and to renew me and to remake me, or as Jesus told a religious leader one time, you need somebody to cause you to be born again. And then finally, what this text tells us in such glorious terms is that this offering of the nearness of grace is available to anyone, anyone. Remember the great irony? The great irony is that the Israelites who were righteous, who zealously pursued righteousness, they, they missed it while those who didn't pursue it found it. And so the Bible now makes this very, very clear. Everyone, verse 11, who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing riches on all who call on him, for everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. See, so hear the, the sweeping offer of salvation it is that the floodgates of God's grace through Jesus are now extended to everyone without distinction. No matter what your background is or where your religious heritage looks like or what you did over the weekend or what you did an hour ago, the offering of salvation is open for you to come and receive Jesus. It's near, it's close. You don't have to work to receive it. You don't have to do things in order to superhuman activity to gain a hold of it. The Bible says it's near, it's close. You only need to believe and receive. 
and you'll be saved. So what do we make of this text if you're a religious person? If you're religious, you need to be warned by what we hear in this text. The warning is this. Believers, do not stop trusting in Jesus. I don't mean by that lose your salvation. What I mean is don't leave trusting Jesus behind as if you trusted in Jesus once and then the rest of your life you gotta figure out how to do it on your own. That is not what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Your only security when you stand before a holy God is that you are covered by the blood of Jesus and you are trusting in him and the rest of your life then is marked by that blood-bought commitment that God has set his love on me not because I'm worthy but because I've put my trust solely in Christ. So don't drift from trusting Christ when you've trusted him for the first time. Your assurance of salvation is based upon trust you fight sin based upon trust. Temptation comes your way, you trust. That looks attractive, but I trust that your word is true, and it's not. And I believe the greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. I refuse to do that. I refuse to get in, give into that. I'm walking away because I'm going to trust that the promises of God are greater than the promises of sin. You fight sin by trust. You produce good works because of trust. I'm doing this because I love you, and it's a joy in my heart to, to demonstrate my love to you. I'm not doing this because I'm earning my salvation. I'm doing this because I'm trusting in Christ. You love selflessly. God, I'm loving people who are hard because I'm trusting that you know what's happening here, and you're going to give me the grace to love hard people. You trust God in the midst of suffering. When the Apostle Paul said, if we felt like we had received the sentence of death in 2 Corinthians 1, and then he says, but that was to make us trust in God who raises the dead. You respond to unfairness in the world by trusting in Jesus, realizing that the final word over my life and what's right and what's wrong has not been spoken, and there's coming a day when Jesus will declare who's right and who's wrong, and I live for that judgment day, not this judgment day. That's trust. Trust essentially is your identity if you are a follower of Jesus. So don't leave trust behind today. If you're weary, you're worn out, you're suffering, you're struggling, facing hardship or persecution or any kind of tension in life, you need to grab a hold of trust and be reminded, I'm trusting, I'm trusting, I'm trusting, I'm trusting, I'm trusting in Jesus. Because friend, that's the essence of what it means to be a Christian. If you're, not here, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, this text is a very important message for you. I've prayed for you today. I've prayed hard. I want you to understand that God's grace is extended to you regardless of where you've been, what you've done. I know you got a past, we all do. There's things that you're ashamed of, we're all ashamed of things we've done. And the solution according to this text is to simply believe that you're a sinner and Jesus died for your sins and if you believe that he is Lord and God raised him from the dead, the Bible says you will be saved. It doesn't matter if you blew it a year ago, a month ago, a week ago, an hour ago, or a minute ago. The text says that the word is near you, meaning it's right here. And my question is, why in the world would you not come to Christ today? Why would you wait one minute longer of 
trying to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and trying to make your own righteousness. Why not just give up and say, God, I need you to make me new. And I believe that Jesus is the one who can do that. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, come now, pray. Strengthen believers, cement our trust in all of the circumstances that we are facing and draw people even now into your kingdom. Father, draw people to the glory of your Son in this very moment. I pray for the glory of Christ's name and for the salvation of people who need a savior. Would you just keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed? I'm gonna give you a moment of just reflection. There will be people who will be making their way up to the front who would love, after we're done, to pray with you about anything going on in your life. There's some of you who here, who, when we're done, you, you need to come up and say to somebody, I've just put my faith in Christ and let somebody pray for you for the first time. There's other believers who your, your knees are bending under the weight of trial and you need to be reminded that you can trust Jesus. There may be some of you here today that have sinned against your kids or grandkids because of your zealousness and God's brought it to mind and you need to repent. So these brothers and sisters are here to pour grace upon you. And so we're gonna close with a moment of quiet reflection for you just to think, what is it that God is saying in this moment to you? And then I'll close at the end in prayer. God have mercy on us for we are all sinners. It's not anyone in this room who's righteous. We pray that believers would put their trust in Christ this week when we face temptations, trials, our own sin issues, things without, things within, that our trust would be in Christ and that we would platform the gospel because we are a Christ-trusting people. And Lord, I pray today that, that there would be some who've crossed the line from death into life, who've crossed from unbelief into belief, who've crossed the line between trying to make themselves righteous, who now are trusting in Christ. Oh, let it be so. We pray all of this in the name of our King who loved us, bought us, redeemed us, and saved us in the name of Jesus, Christ of Nazareth, amen.